Good morning. Please turn this morning to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. We're going to be looking at chapters 17 and 18 this morning. Before my vacation, we looked at the life of Samson. We saw that his whole life was a tragic downhill spiral of vengeance. Samson killed a thousand men because the Philistines came to arrest and kill him. But they wanted to kill him because Samson had viciously slaughtered many Philistines. But Samson viciously slaughtered many Philistines because the Philistines had burned his wife alive. But they burned Samson's wife alive because Samson had burned their fields and vineyards. But Samson burned their fields and vineyards because they gave his wife to another man. But they gave his wife to another man because Samson left her. But Samson left her because she betrayed him. But she betrayed him because the Philistines threatened to kill her. Because she betrayed him, Samson killed 30 Philistines to pay off a gambling debt involving a riddle at his wedding to a pagan Philistine girl. In other words, this whole tragic spiral of vengeance started with Samson's deliberate disobedience to God's command against marrying Canaanites. And it all started when Israel disobeyed God and allowed the Canaanites to remain in the land. As far as I can tell, when Hebrews 11 talks about Samson's faith, it is only because Samson finally called out to God in faith at the very end of his miserable life. But a life of sin has consequences. And for Samson, it ultimately cost him his life. The rest of the book of Judges is kind of like an epilogue or conclusion, which continues to chronicle Israel's downhill spiral into decadence. Beginning with Samson, the Israelites have become so Canaanized, they don't even bother to ask God for deliverance anymore. Let's start by reading chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your word would accomplish your intended purpose in each of our hearts this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. 
Amen. The first thing we need to note is that the man named Micah in this chapter is not the prophet Micah. The Micah in this chapter is just a thoroughly Canaanized Israelite idolater who happens to be named Micah. He is also a thief. He stole 1,100 shekels of silver from his own mother. Now, to give you an idea of how much that was, we will find out in just a minute that Micah later hires a Levite to be his priest, and that Levite was happy with Micah's salary of just 10 shekels a year. Micah returns the money to his mom, not because he was sorry about stealing it, but because he overheard his mother pronounce a curse on the one who had taken it. Micah didn't want to be cursed, so he returned the money. Micah's mom has been thoroughly Canaanized as well. And what I mean by that is she has totally adopted the pagan culture of the Canaanites. In fact, her religion would be called syncretism by modern scholars. That's where someone combines elements of two or more religions together. So, for example, in verse 3, she calls on God to bless her son, and yet she uses the silver to make an idol in direct violation of God's second commandment. And her son just adds that new idol to his other household gods. In Deuteronomy 12, Moses had commanded that Israelites tear down such idols and shrines of worship. Sadly, not only was Israel not destroying these gods, Israelites were actually making them. And by the way, archaeologists have discovered ancient Canaanite household gods and shrines, as well as the molds for making their household gods. Anyway, Micah even appoints one of his sons as a priest. The section concludes in verse 6, saying, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Israel had become so Canaanized, they forgot or ignored the law of Moses entirely. And everyone just did what they wanted or thought was right. Notice it says everyone did as they thought fit. In other words, Micah's story is not is just an Micah's story is just as an example. This kind of idolatry has become characteristic of Israel. The plot thickens starting in verses 7 and 8, where we find a young Levite from Bethlehem left home and was looking for another place to live. He happened to come upon Micah's house in Ephraim. So in verses 9 to 12, Micah asked him, Where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said. I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me. And be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. Micah had appointed his son as priest. But Israelite priests were, were, had to come from the tribe of Levi. And Micah and his sons were Ephraimites. So when a real Levite comes along, Micah offers him the job of father and priest. 
father in this verse is probably a reference to being a spiritual leader. And I would be interested to know if this is where Catholics get the idea of calling their priests father. If so, that would be kind of weird since this priest was a pagan idolater. <coughs> anyway, this Levite wasn't qualified to be a priest either. Only Levite descendants of Aaron could be priests. And we will find out later that this Levite was not a descendant of Aaron. Nevertheless, this Levite became like one of the family. Verse 13, and Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Now remember, Micah has a bunch of household gods. For Micah, Yahweh, or God, is just one God among many. And yet he thinks that since he now has a genuine Levite as priest, Yahweh will bless him. Like his mother, Micah is a syncretist. He has combined elements of Canaanite religion and the worship of God. Levites should have been people who taught the law of God and promoted the worship of God. And here he was serving as a priest in a shrine of idols. In chapter 18, verse 1, it says, In those days Israel had no king. And in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. But God had already given them an inheritance. Their tribe was to be located in the south next to Judah. Sadly, they had disobeyed God by allowing Canaanites to live there with them. And, surprise, surprise, that wasn't working out very well. So now the tribe of Dan is looking for somewhere else to live. So the tribe of Dan sent five representatives, or spies, to spy out the land looking for a place the tribe could relocate. As they passed through Ephraim, they came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. Somehow they recognized the Levite's voice, possibly because Levites may have been traveling teachers. So the spies from Dan asked the Levite from Judah what he was doing in Ephraim. Verses 4 to 6, he told them what Micah had done for him and said, He has hired me and I am, a, I am his priest. And they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. It is ironic that they ask for God's approval, since God had already given them territory. They had just disobeyed God by allowing Canaanites to stay there, and that wasn't working out very well for them. Now, frankly, I don't think this Levite was really asking for Yahweh's approval at all. I suspect that he just asked the idol his mom had made to represent God. And like so many prosperity preachers today, he was just giving an answer his visitors wanted to hear. Verse 7, So the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. 
They also lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. Perfect. The Danites found a land that was peaceful and prosperous and had no treaty agreements with any other nation. In other words, these peaceful people were completely on their own with no one to protect them. This land was 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee and was not part of the tribal allocations God had given Israel. The tribe of Dan had no right to that land, but they didn't care. So when the spies got home, the people of Dan asked how it went. The spies told them about the land and urged the people to attack and conquer it. In verse 10, they add, When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatever. When the spies came back and told the people of Dan about this very good, prosperous, and spacious land, the discussion was not, great, let's see if they will let us live in this spacious land with them. Instead, the spies said, let's attack them and take over their land. The spies even had the audacity to say that God would give the land to them, even though God had not given that land to Dan or any other Israelite tribe. So the tribe of Dan sent 600 men to conquer this peaceful and prosperous land. And on their way, they stopped in Ephraim at Micah's house. Starting in verse 17, the five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. Micah's Levite priest demanded to know what they were doing, and in verses 19 and 20, they answered him, Be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol, and went along with the people. Now remember that Micah had taken this young Levite into his own home, and he had become like a son to Michael, Micah. And yet this Levite, the one who was supposed to be a man of God, helped to rob Micah, who had taken him in and treated him like family. On the other hand, you've heard the saying, what comes or goes around comes around. Micah, who had robbed his own mother, was now being robbed himself. But Micah was not about to take this lying down, so he got some men together and caught up with the Danites. Verses 23 to 25 say, As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you say what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, don't argue with us, or some of the men may get angry and attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. It's kind of like in the movies where some mafia thug tells someone, nice family you have there, be ashamed if something happened to them. Verse 26, so the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. 
So the Danites continued on their way to steal the land they wanted. Verses 27 and 28. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went to Laish against the people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from the Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rohab. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. Verse 27 says the people were at peace and secure. That's not because they had highly fortified walled cities. They felt secure because they lived out of the way and no one was nearby to bother them. Kind of like Randolph is secure. Not because we have a strong police force to withstand the violent gangs from the Twin Cities, but because the gangbangers don't even know we exist and they leave us alone. So when the army of Dan came to these peaceful and unsuspecting people, the Danites ruthlessly killed them with the sword, burned their city to the ground, and took over their land. Verse 29 says they built a new city and named it after their ancestor for whom the tribe of Dan was named. Not only had they conquered the land, they even tried to wipe out the memory of it. Not only that, but in verses 30 and 31, there the Danites set up for themselves the idol. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Until now, the Levite in this story had been anonymous. Now at the end of the story, he has finally been named. He is Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses. In Hebrew, the word son can simply mean descendant. He is a descendant of Moses through Moses' son, Gershom. The author may be trying to make several points here. First, to be a legitimate priest, you had to be from the line of Aaron, not Gershom. This Levite was never a legitimate priest. Second, although he is a descendant of Moses, he and the tribe of Dan have absolutely disgraced the name of Moses by engaging in idolatry forbidden by the law of Moses. And third, Joshua had made the town of Shiloh the center of worship of Yahweh or God. The tribe of Dan is rebelling against that center of Yahweh worship and setting up their own alternative place of worship focused on the idol Micah's mother had handcrafted for him. The Old Testament scholar Lawson Younger sums up the situation very well with several questions. What kind of son steals from his own mother? What kind of mother leads her son into idolatry? What kind of Levite serves at an idolatrous shrine and then happily moves to serve a bigger idolatrous shrine? What kind of people plunder their own people while on their way to annihilate a peaceful city in a region outside the boundaries of their God-ordained allotment? The answer to these questions is that these are people who have completely abandoned God and the law of Moses and do what they think is right in their own eyes. So Israel's downhill spiral continues. 
We are now at the point where they no longer even call out to God. In fact, they become so indistinguishable from the Canaanites, just like so many Christians today are indistinguishable from the culture around us. Oh, they worship in churches and they believe in Jesus, but the Jesus they worship is often not the Jesus of the Bible. Their Jesus is often an all-tolerant, all-accepting God of peace and prosperity. He accepts and even promotes the very lifestyles the biblical Jesus so strongly condemned. And like the Israelites in that, this passage, they are syncretists. They have combined the culture of today with parts of the Bible they like to produce a whole new religion, even though they continue to call it Christian. The book of Judges chronicles what can happen when people ignore the principles of the word of God. As chapter 17, verse 6 said, everyone did as they saw fit. Some of us are old enough to remember the song, My Way, by Frank Sinatra. In that song, the repeated, repeated refrain was, I did it my way. That could have been the theme song for the book of Judges. The lesson for us is to build our life on the word of God and don't just do it our way. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams arose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain came down, streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Those today who build their lives and religion around our godless culture are like the Israelites and judges who abandoned the word of God and did whatever was right in their own eyes. They are building on a foundation of sand. Let's pray. Lord, give us the knowledge, wisdom, and discernment to recognize the godless aspects of our culture and the courage to stand firm on your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.